Richard Aya sat down with moderator Ann Catanio for a one-on-one -on -one interview in April of 2002. I'm Hope Clark, a member of Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, and this is Masters of the Stage. This program is produced and presented by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing. Because this program was not originally intended for broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. As a result, portions of the conversation may have been edited. First, the interviewer for the evening we're thrilled to have is Anne Catania. Anne, as you know, as many of you know, is the dramaturg at Lincoln Center and the creator and director of Lincoln Center Theater Director's Lab. Uh, and she has <laughs> and our very special guest for the evening, Mr. Richard Ayer, who we're very thrilled to have uh, with us tonight, who is in town, as many of you know, directing a small little play that I think you might have heard of called The Crucible with some unknown actors, but he'll talk about that later. Um, as you know, also the director of the Royal National Theater, direct, produced over 100 plays, many of which came to New York, a number of which were at Lincoln Center, many of which Broadway, we'll talk about a little bit about those tonight. Uh, an esteemed author, uh, many of you may have seen his most recent book, Changing Stages, which was turned into a PBS series, and I also believe on BBC in England. And uh, his most recent endeavor, I guess just prior to The Crucible, or just coming out here now, uh, the wonderful, glorious film, Iris. So um, he is quite an artist in many different mediums, and we thank you both for being here, and we're thrilled. So I want to turn it over to you. Thank you. I thought I might be able to just get the obvious one out of the way first. Uh, talk a little bit about The Crucible. Um, I know it's not the first time you've directed this play, but it is the first time you've directed it here. Uh, could you just talk a little bit about previous Crucibles and why now, why here? And um, then I'm going to ask yeah. you what's different. Sure. <laughs> I, I first directed um, The Crucible. I think, uh, I know I'm too young. To, to, for this Same. to be true, but, uh, but uh, 30 years ago. Uh, and um, uh, I was reminded of this um, a, a few years ago. I met, uh, I was at a, a party for politicians, and this guy came up to me, young, thrusting politician, uh, and it, it, um, somebody introduced us, and he said to me, we've met before. And I said, no, 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 I, uh, we haven't met before. And he said, we have, because you came to my production of, uh, to, uh, I came to your production of The Crucible with my school. Uh, <laughs> and he said, the, the seniors, the, what we call the sixth form, and you came to the school and talked to us about the play. And he said, uh, and I thought then, I thought what I most wanted to be in the world was an actor. Anyway, um, that man became Prime Minister of Britain. So, uh, and I wish I could have said that I was very, very impressed by this, this bright young uh, sixth former, but I, I had no memory at all of it. Anyway, so that's, that's how long ago it was that I directed uh, The Crucible. For me, um, although I sort of, uh, I grew up um, in the south of England, and I can't honestly say that I was at the time Although I was alive, uh, I wasn't aware at all of the McCarthy hearings. And it wasn't until 
so I guess I was well into my 20s that I became uh, aware and knowledgeable about, uh, about American history. So to me, the, the play had always been attractive as a sort of, uh, as a fable first, rather than um, as, as a piece of, uh, as a metaphor for a piece of American political history. So I'd always uh, approached the play feeling this was, this had the power of, of um, great stories, great uh, uh, legends, great, great fables, great moral fables. And part of that is to do with the two things. One is that, that uh, Arthur Miller has coined a language for the play which is not contemporary, nor is it sort of pastiche um, 17th century. It's, it's a mixture of um, the King James Bible, of reading the King's, King James Bible, of reading Shakespeare, and of studying the, the transcripts of, of, of the, the witch trials, the Salem trials at the time. And out of that, he's concocted a theatrical language which has fantastic muscularity and color and is very much its own thing, which I think is, is what a playwright always has to, to do to evolve um, a language. So that's one of the reasons that, that it has um, this, this power as a fable. Um, and I think the, the other thing is, is that uh, apart from the, the subject matter, which is never going to go away, um, about you know, how a society deals with dissent and how a society deals with uh, becomes repressive when it feels itself to be threatened. The other thing is that in some way the play is what I would describe as Shakespearean. And that's um, what I mean by that, is that the, the, the rare gift that Shakespeare has, which is why he's such a, a brilliant model for, for playwrights, of being able to fuse the, the private and the public, um, the, the, the individual and, and the social. And that play really does it as well as any 20th century player I know. Well, then the second, this was at a regional theatre I did in, in Edinburgh, and then I ran a regional theatre in, in Nottingham, uh, and I did it there simply because I, I loved the play, and because, I mean, this may not be true in England, but if you ran a theatre, uh, and probably still do, because I also produced it when I was at, at the National, I didn't direct it, um, you always get good houses for the Crucible. Uh, and um, so if you run a theatre um, you can't pretend that that isn't a strong consideration for putting on any play um, so that, that's, that's why I did it again at, uh, at Nottingham it's also um, it has to be said and, and this is one of the reasons why I'm so much enjoying it here it's a play for a great company uh, it has at least 12 really great parts including, I mean, the obvious um, three star parts of, of Proctor and his wife and, and the judge Danforth. But actually, uh, you, you need a great company for it, but also the play demands a great company, so that if you do get um, a group of really good actors, then the play becomes what every play should be, is more than the sum of its parts. I'm curious to go back to this. I mean... Going back then 30 years and, and moving up to the present, did, did, did British audiences get uh, 
the immediate political dimensions of the play that you feel back then in either production? Do you go maybe to prepare? I can't imagine how, I mean, most of the audience, maybe I'm wrong, but I would say most of the audience are too young to remember the McCarthy hearings, to have a sense of red baiting, witch hunting. In their in their consciousness, and, uh, um, you know, there may be some of them who who remember it very vividly, but in the same way as I grew up uh, as a child of of, of this, as well of World War Two, um, I was born towards the end of, of, of the war, and my my parents were um, their consciousness was absolutely dominated by their experience of, of the war. My father um, was in the navy during the war for during the, the war, and I guess for 20 years after, most that was the sort of magnetic pole of, of conversations and, and relationship. I was obsessed by, because it's their generation, I was obsessed by their experience. And so I used to read nothing but, but war stories. And so I was obsessed by the whole notion of making moral choices in a time, you know, the, the idea, and I, I still... This for me is very, very strong. Is would you stand up? You know, you live next door. You're you're um, not Jewish. You live next door to a Jewish family. You look out of the window, and you know the police are coming to take away your next door neighbour. Do you stand up? And say, hey, hey, hey! You can't do that. Or do you sit quiet? That that extreme moral choice has fascinated, has obsessed me, um, and. Fortunately, most of us aren't put to those those extreme moral tests, um, and most of us, um, I think, are extremely anxious about how we would perform given that sort of um, choice. Uh, and um, and so that's why, to me, it's it's almost the central moral issue. Um, you know, do you stand up to defend you know, your your family, friends, country, whatever, uh, or do you? And I think, I think the, the, the Hueck hearings in the McCarthy era are the American versions of that. You know, do you name names? Do you not name names? And I'm certainly obsessed for very good reason in decades of thinkers. Also, I have I, I do have uh, American friends who I mean, apart from Arthur, who lived through it and. I think of one in particular who is a, a writer who still, whenever he talks about it, uh, cannot forgive and cannot forget those who, who name names. Uh, but I would like to be able to say that I feel I would have performed well. Uh, but I don't know. I really I don't know. And that's, that is, the, for me, the, the fascination, part of the fascination of that play. I mean, to me, also, you know, if you remember, um, you know, the, those, it's hard to conceive, but those public forums when Arthur Miller's career began, you know, if you remember the person that is death of salesman, a tragedy, according to Aristotle. But I think if you look at the Crucible in a number of those ways, he is touching elements that are, um, as you say, I mean, quite contemporary, quite political, they're good plays, but, but the, the story of the Crucible and, and, and you know, what happens in the post that play is almost a, a kind of Greek ritual of choosing an outcasting, outcasting them. I mean, sort of a 
struggles that society have to go through. So there's something kind of coming through those plays that is more ancient in structure that you can also find beyond the merely political in terms of 1950. I think that's that's also part of the the, the tension of the play is that it has exactly what you're talking about at the same time that every, everybody in the play got to, gets caught in this vortex because there's a, a, a series of, of accidents and uh, you know, it starts with this, the incident of the, the, the girls dancing in the, in the woods and then you see that that incident itself is much more complicated and much more loaded and it's a number of times in the play you think if only X had done this at this moment um, they would have been able to pull themselves out of the vortex but somehow it's, it's a sort of perfect cataclysm uh, in that nobody is in the position or nobody is able to pull them back from the grip um, just coming back to this production I mean you, you know the play you've done it you're, you're coming to America and you have worked here with both English companies and companies American actors I'm curious how you prepared what was in your mind as you set up to meet a new company, what that was like, meeting some people you know in the country, some of them don't. But also, how did you undertake to find your, your way through the crucible this time around? Um, well, it's, it's a thing that I've noticed uh, everywhere I've gone, in, in Europe, East Europe, um, uh, Southeast Asia, um, Britain and America, is that good actors um, belong to the same sort of tribe. Masonic tribe. I mean, they share the sh they share the same secret. Good actors are invariably intelligent and witty, think very fast. Um, and um, I always think that actors are rather maligned because um, they're forced to talk for massive uh, media, you know, appetite crap about their private lives. I mean, what can you you know? They don't want to, or most of them don't want to. And they can't talk about the process of acting because, you know, it's very, very difficult to talk about what it is that you do. So what they do, they have to talk about um, their, their clothes or, or sex lives. You know, it's... It, so, anyway, I'm diverting. The fact is that a good company is a good company, whether it's in England or, uh, or Australia or you know, Eastern Europe or in the United States it, this is probably and I know you'll think that ah, this is entirely self-serving flattery but probably a better company than I would get doing the same play in London and that's because I guess of the the famine of, um, of good theatre so that there are uh, and partly that there are a number of good parts good character parts and partly a lot of actors who probably don't get as much opportunity as they would like to work on a really good play uh, in, uh, in a big theatre. Uh, whereas in London, you would say that probably um, the similar actors are probably spot for choice. And you're also in London, you don't get this East Coast, West Coast split, and you don't have this kind of uh, snobbery about working in, in television. So, you know, there's n because there is no movie industry in, in Britain, really, effectively, good drama is, is essentially made for, for television. So, 
the, the equivalent actors who are playing the, the smaller character roles, wonderful, wonderful actors over here, um, would probably be playing leads in pretty good TV drama uh, and therefore not available to do you know, uh, um, six months in a, in a show. Um, so I have an answer question of how I... How you prepared? What, what did you come um, in with? Uh, I was, I'm, I'm sort of not going to say the word concept, but I mean, how did you start your thinking about what you well, wanted to do? Well, I, I hate the idea of what the Germans call concept. Uh, and I was talking to early on with some of the actors about this, and one of them said, I guess you could say that your concept is try not to fuck it up. <laughs> and uh, I guess I, I would say that. Um, you know, you, it's not quite enough to say one isn't a sort of neutral conduit to say, you know, I, I, I you know, piously, I, I try not to get in the way of the play, because on the other hand, it's that's not what you do at all. You try absolutely to to not get in the way of the play, but to make the play as expressive as as possible. So first of all, I guess we started off reading it, talking about it. Arthur was around for the first three days of rehearsal, but with this play, there's a lot of sort of historical baggage to talk about. You talk about what the, the, the um, coordinates of this society are, what they believe in, why they, they believe in. Uh, I have a lot of excellent research material that I bought. I had a visit to Salem earlier uh, in, in the fall, and um, which has a number of terrible museums, <laughs> if anybody is thinking of going there, except for one very, very interesting and, and utterly deserted colonial village, which is a sort of reconstructed colonial village right on the outskirts of Salem. Nobody, as far as I could see, ever visited, except for, for uh, myself and my wife. Uh, and then, um, and there's a lot of stuff you can buy, the transcripts of the trial, um, very useful book, Everyday Life in Colonial Massachusetts. Um, uh, any number of, of, I mean, I prefer social, social history. You know, people want to know what do I ask, what do, they want to, what do I eat, what do I wear, what do I sit on, did I make this piece of, of furniture? You know, all those things that you need to know in order to say to an actor who's playing in a 17th century play, I think you do this, you come in and if you wash yourself, you know, is there a tap? No. Where do you get the water from? That sort of stuff. Then talking about, you know, the religious beliefs. And then also encouraging, not that Arthur needs much encouragement, to, to tell stories about the, the, um, the origin of the play. Uh, and also, to some extent, um, uh, Arthur talking about why he still, uh, to his horror finds that elements of the play or the, 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 the fable is still very much alive. What did he say? Well, we were actually talking about a number of examples of witch hunts in, in, um, and everybody was saying, oh, I read something about, uh, and Arthur was saying, well, there was this um, guy who was accused of, of pedophilia uh, who turned out to be um, not guilty, um, who had been persecuted, and there was a kind of witch hunt in a small Midwest 
town, uh, and actually there's been a similar thing in, in England quite, quite recently, um, then I guess we'd just talk about the play is so precisely written that you, you have to work through the text. Um, you, can, you can improvise to a certain extent, essentially, uh, you have to work through, um, funnel everything through the language. And that means being very fastidious about uh, how the language is put together. You know, choice of words, choice of, of punctuation. Which is how you play Shakespeare. It is, but I, I think it's also how you play... I mean, Tennessee Williams and Arthur Miller are both very, very musical writers. If you, if you put in breaks in, um, in a line uh, where there is no break, then you keep feeling as if you're stubbing your toe. And uh, the, the, the crucible is built of a number of um, very, very uh, powerful cadences, rising cadences, which tend to, to rise to a number, to detonate uh, uh, climaxes, which have a combination of physical and verbal energy. But actually, if you don't detonate those climaxes, because one actor is kind of playing their thing and taking kind of the moment before the line rather than playing the, the action or the thought through the line, then you just it just doesn't ignite. And it drives you absolutely crazy. But um, if you if you can hear it. And and these actors are very, 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 very good. They can hear it. And and immediately they say, Oh I see what you mean. I'm taking that moment because I'm preparing myself to say it. And I said, yeah, but just play it through the line and you'll find it much, much easier. So it's that sort of work uh, that is a combination of uh, utterly pragmatic um, discovery and, and, and a sort of quite disciplined process that doesn't depend on uh, study of the text. Um. Any, any thoughts about uh, members of the same tribe? Any thoughts about working with American actors versus working with English actors? I mean, um, you know you have when was the first time you worked with American actors? I guess in the 70s. Um, I, I commissioned a play uh, when I was running the Nottingham Playhouse Regional Theatre um, by a writer called Trevor Griffiths. And it was, it was called Comedians. And it was about a group of working class nightclub comedians who... We, we know them. You, you know them. <laughs> anyway, I, I did it in, in Nottingham, and then it was done in... Uh, then I did it in, in the West End, in, in London. And then um, it came here to be done by Mike Nichols in a... It, it was a sort of kind of clone of my production, same set, and it had in fact virtually the same blocking, you know, it was but they, and and, and one of, and the leading actor Jonathan Price, same uh, anyway, I was as a sort of sop for not directing it on Broadway, I was invited over for the last few previews the idea, I, I'd have a vacation in, in New York anyway, it turned out that they, they delayed the opening and uh, I ended up, Mike asked me if I would work on the production uh, and so I did, I spent 
um, ten days working on the on the production, and that was my introduction to uh, American actors, and that was the first time. I thought, but but there is nothing unexpected about these actors. Just the only thing I'd add the caveat to that that every time I've worked with American actors, maybe it's to do with the sort of lack of British diffidence, but you do get uh, a, a more commitment. I mean, more on heart on your sleeve commitment. You also get more um, work done at home than, than the equivalent British actors. And, and if you audition here, and you're used to auditioning in England, it's such a joy. Um, but but uh, British, act, uh, British actors tend to be very um, sort of diffident and on the borderline of lazy when they come, come in to, to audition, uh, except for a musical. Because, you know, musical, you can't fake it, you know. Um, and uh, American actors are sort of shockingly well-prepared. And generally, generally they will have learnt the sides, uh, and that's almost unprecedented, um, almost unheard of in, in uh, among British actors. And that, that again, that's probably partly difference of national personality, but it's partly also that um, you know there's, there's not a sense that it's a small world, and, and it's much more difficult to get a part in the theatre in New York. Um, than it is in, in London. Um, I want to sort of segue a little bit to, to, to talking about um, your, I guess I'll ask you some maybe provocative questions about how I see who you are in your work as a director, which I've always been very fond of, um, has been very fond of me personally. But there are, we share a great admiration for Harley Grandpa Barker. Um, I was looking through your book um, again before this interview and I saw a quote that you, that you in some like from George Devine talking about running a theater and, and the quote is policy is who you work with love that quote and um, also Richard you once said to, to a group of our directors at the lab uh, which also I love very much I think I quoted to them the other night um, not everyone should be Ariane Mnuchin not everyone in a decade should be a concept director there is room for work that is about something else. That it doesn't, you know, put everything in its own mold. I love that about you. And then I, I have to tell this brief um, anecdote, which I think sort of uh, may lead into a little bit of how you work. We were we were discussing in our lab um, Richard's production of, uh, I mean, uh, uh, of uh, Richard III, which Ian McKellen had was done as a film, I guess, but it was also banned during this time. And one of our lab directors said, which was talking about what he was trying to do with the play, and one of the lab directors said, oh my God, you know, every idea that, you, that you've just spoken about, I, I saw the production, I actually saw that idea on the stage. I, I do productions, my friends do productions, then we see each other's productions, we go to bars afterwards and we tell each other our ideas after the production, but we don't ever see them on the stage. How do you get your ideas onto the stage? Which is the ultimate question. And you very gamely said, you, you sit as I did on that particular production, with your designer and your actor, and when pays you to do this, you sit at, at, at your house or wherever, and you and you go through the text, moment by moment, line by line, beat by beat, stage by stage, direction by stage direction, and you ask at each moment, 
what does this mean? What does this mean to us? And if you answer that each time, all of your ideas will go on the stage. And those things together, policy, who you work with, not being Michigan, and what you're seeing is someone who is exploring genuinely, openly, to me, a text, whether it's a Shakespeare text or a crucible, and finding within it a world rather than you know, the concept directly who comes to that. Um, well, I, I guess, I guess for me, what what is is most attractive about the theatre um, is that there is one ineradicable thing about it: is that uh, at the heart of every piece of theatre is is a human being, and that, so that all theatre depends on, in some way, the scale of the human being, uh, the human body, and the human voice, and. Whatever you do, you can't dissolve that. So there is, I mean, this drives some of my friends absolutely crazy because you can't, you can't conceptualize theater. You can't, the theater is sort of resists modernism. It resists abstraction. And however hard you try to make theater abstract, obstinately, at the center, you still have these messy, human beings, people. And so I said that I, I know that that's really what, why I'm, I, I'm drawn to it, is precisely because you can't get rid of the people. Uh, and so if I say that policy is who you work with, it's, it, it is, you know, what are the elements you're working with? They are the human elements. And, and part of the job of a director has to be to create a healthy society in which, I mean, a society, but albeit the one that you've assembled, uh, which is politicians' dreams, uh, <laughs> or, or perhaps a tyrant's dream, um, that you've assembled a group of people who are all contributing to that society, and you have the great uh, gift for um, any society that you have a common aim. And everybody has signed up to that common aim, voluntarily. They've agreed that they want to be part of this um, this group, going towards uh, uh, an end, you know, putting on a play. And then what's so wonderful about it is the circle is sometimes complete, completed by an audience who says, this, this society is incredibly healthy. We love it, we love it, we love it. And then that's partly why the theatre is so sort of intoxicatingly, you know, when it's, when it's good. So it, it intoxicating to work in and why uh, you do form very, very strong bonds with the, with the people you work with because of that, that social um, confluence. Um, the thing about um, Granville Barker, if this isn't a parallel track, is that Granville Barker is very... Um, not very well known in, in Britain. And um, in, in the TV series that I did, I deliberately um, did quite a lot about uh, Granville Barker. He was, um, first of all, he was, he was an actor. Um, I mean, he was, he was a, 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 a genius. Uh, he was a very, very able actor for whom Shaw wrote um, several parts, uh, including um, in t- uh, Camden. Marchbanks was was actually written uh, for um, Harley Granville Barker. Um, he was 
uh, a writer, and he wrote about eight plays, of which two I believe to be really great plays. One is called The Boise Inheritance, uh, and a, a, another brilliant example of, of uh, a play that deals with the society and deals with individuals within it. And also, probably, I think the only English play to, that gets close to being to learning why Chekhov is so great. Uh, and and also he was a director, a, a very gifted director. And also he ran a theatre, the Royal Court Theatre, at probably its most successful time, except for the time in the in the late fifties. So. And he also wrote waste. Uh, he also wrote waste, and he also wrote a play called called The Madras House. And then he retired from the theatre. He married an uh, American heiress. And he retired from the theatre, went to live in France when he was 40. And <laughs> Bernard Shaw never forgave him. Um, and he, broke, he really broke Shaw's heart. And it's also those who say, well, Shaw didn't have a heart to break. Uh, you know, wrong because um, he found it so painful that he could never talk about it to his biographer until Shaw, until Shaw's wife died and then poured out. Um, so he was he's just a figure that you see these, we're dominated by people who uh, write things down about the theatre so that you say what are the what significant figures in 20th century theatre oh Stanislavski and Brecht well why Be- only actually I think because Stanislavski wrote down a lot of stuff uh, about acting, <laughs> some of which is good, and uh, actually most of which is good. Uh, and, and Brecht wrote a lot of theory uh, about playwriting and about directing. And because it can be taught, it's people, you know, generation after generation is made to think that these are the sort of two polar uh, figures of 20th century theatre. And so people, the doers, you know, the actors, the directors who don't write you know, codified handbooks, they're, they're just forgotten. But, I mean, that's the nature of theatre. And that's also one of the things I like about it, is that it only exists in the memory. And you can't, unlike a film, a film can be, you know, you can have a director 30 years after the date talking you through a, a, a shot by shot of the film. Theatre, you can't, and I rather I like that. It's funny, you, 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 you've dealt with this extensively in the director's lab. Exactly what you just said. People who have systems will remember, and you look at, and we tried to do this one. You look at Louis Chauvet, or you look at Michel Saint-Denis, or you look at Michael Barker, who are equally good directors. What's better, but, but they have their legacy is so temporary. Uh, Roger Blanc, people like that, although some of the Bernies involved. But um, it's it's. The ones you remember are the ones who have the theories that you can follow. But to me, Ramble Barker, which sort of leads in a way to you, is, is when, you, when you work on Shakespeare or, or you know, texts of this sort, it, it streams through to you through history, through the actors, and through these actor managers who, who learn things from the actors and who learn things as apprentices from older actors, and it comes down, and all the information in the very orums, and, and Ramble Barker just stands in the sort of headwater of our century of people who have this practical experience and, and these premises to Shakespeare are so 
sensible and so insightful. I mean, I remember I was preparing an essay for um, our magazine on Twelfth Night, and, and so I look up Ramble Barker, and he says, people, his friends must have despaired of Shakespeare as he started to write Twelfth Night, because he just finished As You Like It, and, and you know, Henry V, and they must have thought, he's just, you know, it's just so facile, it's so jingoistic, I mean, he's just sort of selling out. And then he wrote, who would think of, of Shakespeare in this sort of sensible way as you would a contemporary playwright who's taking a turn that's just too popular? But he always has this very sort of sensible way through things, as well as being a brilliant, a brilliant sense of design, tremendously sophisticated <coughs> visual palette. Um, anyway, we love him. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's hard to, I don't know how you pass on, um, except we are lucky enough. Um, in my time, so to say, Gilbert, who I knew, had worked with, with Grandma Barker and had a very long life. And, uh, and you mentioned Michel Saint-Denis, uh, a, f- a friend of mine, who in fact very sadly died last, last week, uh, a director called Stuart Birch, who was a patron of mine and effectively made me the director of regional theatre to succeed him. Well, he'd been a pupil of, of Michel Saint-Denis and used to talk about that. So uh, you kind of accumulate that sort of empirical knowledge, which I think is much, much more valuable than the, the kind of textbook stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit like, you know, the, the baguettes in the Bible and the music where you're somebody who studied with somebody who studied with somebody who studied with somebody and you can track yourself back to Brahms or something, you know, the theater world leads me to a question which I'll sort of ask you before we segue into some questions. Um, I'd like to ask people who they, whose work they admire. When you were starting out, who, whose work in the theater as a writer or a director or an actor did you love? And, and where are you now? What do you love now? Who do you admire? Uh, probably the same, same ones. Um, I think Peter Brook, uh, because of his King Lear, was the first um, King Lear I'd seen. I'd, ne- I'd never seen or read the play uh, when I saw his King Lear. So I was uh, not backwards and sideways and upside down by that. But, but also Peter Brook because, uh, partly because he talked so well about the, the theatre, um, I hadn't seen a number of his productions. And also because I just wrote to him and said I wanted to be a director and he very, very charmingly, and said, well, why don't you come and talk about it? Uh, when I was, uh, I was very young. But I guess the Royal Court of the, this was sort of 60s, mid-60s, um, work of, of Bill Gaskell, uh, um, Edward Bond's plays, um, things done with tremendous spareness and taste and muscularity things which, which really made the plays fantastically expressive with the minimum of, of, of resources, the maximum of expression with the minimum of resources. But the playwrights that first uh, struck me um, were all American. And all my, my teenage years were completely dominated and colonized taken over by American culture and I thought you have to remember this is written in the 
50s, mid to late 50s, I thought everything American was better. You know, I thought uh, Americans had food, you know. I mean, we were, <laughs> and we were shortly, this was near, you know, we had rationing. Uh, I grew up with rationing, and, and you know, candy was rationed. Uh, and, you know, so I don't remember the excitement of seeing a banana. Uh, you know, and, uh, and oranges, you know. Um, so I thought, uh, I thought American music was great because this is, this is the age where rock and roll started to hear Little Richard and, and, and Elvis uh, and uh, Chuck Berry. And I thought, I still do, I think vastly superior to the English equivalent, uh, or non-equivalent, but the copies. Uh, and then, and, and movies. Um, and, and then plays and so the first plays that I read were, were Arthur Miller's plays and, and Tennessee Williams plays and I thought there is nothing I mean there is nothing that is half as vigorous as, as exciting and as expressive in English writing as, as these plays uh, and it took a long time for that influence to have to really um spread into British theatre and I guess you'd say John Osborne's play Look Back in Anger was a first sign of saying look, look what's happening in, in the States and it took so long you know if you think of O'Neill you know the, the passion of O'Neill sometimes insane passion of, of O'Neill's writing and, and then you know the, the group playwrights and Odette's and and uh, Miller and, and Williams and it just took a very very long time for that to seep through into British theatre and then then really I was lucky that my um, I didn't go to the theatre really until I was 16 or 17 uh, and the, when I started to go to the theatre regularly it coincided with the sort of floodgate of uh, British writers um, and directors and, and actors really reclaiming the theatre uh, from a, a very sort of oppressive, polite, um, genteel uh, set of writers. And uh, what do you make of what Brooke is doing now? Um, well, he's sort of taken minimalism to uh, such an extent that it sort of <laughs> You know, it's very... When it works, it's absolutely exquisite. Like, the production, like The Man Who, I thought was was absolutely beautiful. I mean, it's, it's a perfect piece of work. With, with Hamlet, I just thought, yeah, but, you know, there's all this and this and this. And in some way, it had... It, it had oddly become a sort of rather polite thing. And... The minimalism somehow, uh, the passion had been uh, drained out. It's sort of in, during this Olympian period. It's very, it's very um, cool. Yeah, but but you know, the, the Mahabharata is just one of the greatest things I've ever seen in a theatre, and and he did a lovely. I don't know if it's been here. Uh, uh, a play called The Suit. Which or maybe in French, yeah. La Cossie. Yeah. In South Africa? Yeah. Yeah. We did it at Lincoln Center in the South African Festival. It was the last production that had been marked. In, in Peter's production. 
No. Oh, in the in the Bowers Group. Yeah. It's a South African writer who was a journalist uh, and then became a novelist who was sort of known as the Chekhov of South Africa. This is an adaptation of a beautiful, beautiful short story about an uh, adulterous man and um, his suit. Very beautiful. Yeah. Let me ask you one last question, which is uh, I'm trying to sort of cover all these bases to open some things up. You've left uh, being an artistic director and you're now a freelance director. Do you have any reflections upon the life? Director and um, well, I, I miss the collective venture. Um, you know, I, I don't miss that thing of being responsible for everything. Um, what, <laughs> what I used to describe as the block toilet syndrome is that, you know, you, there was a time when I, th- I couldn't cross the, the lobby without somebody ca- coming up to tell me, did I know there was a block toilet? What was I going to do about it? Uh, and it's a, but in one way, I sort of quite liked the, the fact of feeling, being made to feel responsible for everything. Um, and, and actually, if you say, don't, I bet you don't miss all those meetings. Actually, I do miss all those meetings because they were meetings with my colleagues, friends, and to go back to policies who you work with the people I'd chosen to work with. So I miss the comradeship of that. Um, and it's just difficult as a freelance. Um, you're not your own producer. You know, that's what's so fantastic about running a theatre, is that you can decide to employ yourself. <laughs> and, um, I mean, also, you have to say what is fantastic is the joy of seeing other people's work. I mean, I, I coined... Well, I didn't coin, but it should be a word. The opposite of schadenfreude, which is taking joy in other people's misery. I don't know what the word... There's not a German... Strangely, there's not a German word. <laughs> the opposite. Uh, but there ought to be a word for taking pleasure in each in other people's joy, um, it, which essentially is the key to running a theatre. Uh, if you're a director, that you've got to stand aside and say, well, here is a play that I would like to direct, but they'll do it better. Or, uh, and you hand it over. And, uh, and then in some way, it's more satisfying. So it, as a freelance, you've just got to sort of carve out your own, uh, your own work. And you do get in the habit, and I know it's bad hat, of being your own producer, of not having to listen to half a dozen people who are telling you how you could make your work better. <laughs> and how, whatever anybody says, nobody is that great at, you know, just saying, yes. yes, thank you very much, thank you. But I did, on this film that I've just done, I did have um, two producers and uh, seven um, executive producers. Uh, and they had, most of them had assistants and, and script advisors and all those. So I did develop a sort of zen-like calm about <laughs> just taking, I, I see, okay, and writing down whatever it was they said. And distilling, and of course, generally, people, you know, people want to be helpful. And there was a wonderful thing that uh, I was working once with a, uh, an actress called Wendy Hiller, who is the actress who is the, if any of you seen the 
Thelma Pygmalion. We know she, she You know that. You do. Uh, anyway, she's a great actress. Um, and I was doing a, a, a television film where she was playing a, um, uh, a very grand woman. And, she, and we did a few days' rehearsal beforehand. And she started off reading this part like uh, a parody of Lady Bracken putting on a strange, funny voice. <laughs> and, and I looked terribly dismayed. She stopped and said, is something worrying you? And I said to her, I'm very, very sorry, but I, I really think that this is not the right way to approach this problem. We talked about who the woman was. And she said, oh, I see, I see, I see, I see. And she said, I've got it completely wrong. I'm so sorry. I feel so foolish. And then she said, let's do it again. She said, you know, you will say, because I do want to be good at this part. And if you remember that, on the whole, I mean, it's very, very rare that somebody connected with a project doesn't want the project to be as good as possible. <laughs> and, and I know that sounds sort of utterly self-evident, but sometimes you're thinking that there you are, surrounded by enemies who are trying to fuck up your, your you know, beautiful dream. And actually, they're just people saying, you know, I, I could help you. And, and so I do think one of the things I try to do is, is make myself, um, even if it's sometimes very difficult, you know, from pride or vanity, but to listen to people who are trying to make it good. My, my friend John Guerra was this, and he used to get the best notes in his playwriting career from the second balcony usher <laughs> at the Barrymore Theatre. She would always give him a note. Um, let, let us, uh, time has come to open the floor to questions. I'll, I'll sort of, I, when I take questions, I'd like to just get the gist of the question and stop you so we don't have long questions so we can get a lot of you in. So with that in mind, let's just jump in with you. Yes. Hi, my question is about um, what, what kind of environment you, you consciously try and create in the person process to gender creativity. Uh, I don't know if you can hear the question is what, what kind of um, atmosphere, yeah, in a, in a rehearsal room do, do I um, produce in order to engender creativity? Uh, I guess crudely making everybody feel that they're contributing. So in the case of The Crucible, uh, like the first two days of rehearsal, we were simply sitting around a very large table. And uh, at the very large table were six very young girls. I mean, not very young. They're sort of 17. Uh, and so the ages in the room go from sort of 86 author to 17 <laughs> girls. Now, actually, two or three of the girls had done massive research because they're at school and somehow they, they were doing kind of history projects. And so I did consciously encourage those girls to contribute to the to the conversation. So, you know, th there was one of them who actually knew everything about the <laughs> I mean, everything. And uh, it was, so it, that was sort of consciously let, let these people speak so that you're just sort of implicitly demonstrating that everybody has a voice and that there isn't a hierarchy of, you know, the person with the most lines doesn't necessarily or the loudest voice doesn't necessarily get heard. So uh, I suppose that would be one thing. But essentially, what I said before is try 
in whatever way, and I couldn't say I had a, a conscious um, process, just make the society function. And that's very much, that changes from production to production, the, the, the manner of the, the play and the, and the, the actors. You know, it very much depends. Sometimes you've got sort of mercurial uh, actors, you know, playing the leading parts who, you know, are, are maybe sort of ferociously selfish about their time. And in some way you've got to balance their need against the need of other people. But that's, that's what I do. Yeah. Okay. Bob. Just like to share with you, to take joy in someone else's joy is to propel. Propel. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yes. Um, going back to producers, after you've written down what they, the, all the suggestions that they, do you actually incorporate them, and how do you decide which to incorporate? If you don't, how do you? How do you? I think if if anybody, I mean, the, the, I incorporate what I think is is right, um, and. I mean, there was an interesting experience for me on, on Iris of doing a test screening in New York um, at the Lowe's Theatre on, uh, uh, opposite the Lincoln Center, one of those um, theatres there. And everybody, you know, you hear people say, oh, these test screenings, they're a nightmare. Well, in some ways they are a nightmare because they have to um, have, a, they have a questionnaire and you come out and they fill in the questionnaire and within five minutes of the film finishing, you're told you, the movie scored 75 or whatever. Is it, it's, is it good? Yeah, yeah, it's great. great. <laughs> uh, and, and it's sort of no more scientific than people going to a preview at the theatre and saying, you know, and it's saying, well, what did you think? 75? Yeah, 75. But there it is. So it's sort of pseudo-scientific. The interesting thing is then after, after the questionnaire um, figures, they keep back about 20 people out of an audience room, in this case about 300. And there was just an interlocutor, a mentor, who was conducting the conversation. Now, it starts the, the worst moment uh, for any director is when they say, you know, I want you to hold up your hands, I've got five choices, was it excellent, good, very good, good, poor, terrible. I don't, I can't live with and, uh, and so you, you look like that. Um, but towards the end of the discussion, they, they, they got very free and, and, and nobody had completely um, destroyed them. In fact, they were very generous about the film. And then some said, what about, is there anything else you feel? And somebody said, I'm not sure about the end. I don't, I can't live with and, uh, and so you... you like that. Um, but towards the end of the discussion, they, they, they got very free and, and, and nobody had, had completely um, destroyed them. In fact, they were very generous about the film. And then some said, what about, is there anything else you feel? And somebody said, I'm not sure about the end. And then somebody else said, yeah, uh, I don't know about the end. I, I didn't mind, but doesn't, doesn't the film have three endings? And he said, yeah, yeah. And I went to it thinking, they're absolutely right. The, the film has three endings. And then, in fact, we recut the film. And we didn't recut the film because the audience had said, or because there was someone from Miramax saying, if you don't recut the film, we aren't going to distribute the film. Simply that you realize 
hearing it spoken, you think, yeah, it's, that's right. And somehow, for all, we had you know, eight producers and the editor and so on. Nobody had observed that. But once you'd seen it, it was perfectly clear. So, uh, you know, I guess it, you've just got to make the, you know, it's, it's a judgment that you're doing it in good faith, not because somebody's made you. example was when we did uh, our production of Carousel, which eventually came to the, uh, the Lincoln Center Theatre, with Vivian Beaumont. With the, um, but in London, Mr. Snow was played by an actor of such genius, who was so clearly much, much, much the best actor for the part, who was black. Uh, and. Um, but actually born, you know, he's British, born in the north of England, uh, he's black. So people were saying, how can you have Mr. Snow? And I said, look, this is, this is much, the, he is the best actor for the part. He sings like an angel. He's, he's just a beautiful man, a wonderful actor. Um, he's sort of completely circular, actually. So, okay. Anyway, he was, played the part, and... He was, it's just case made by talent. So, yeah, I mean, the, the answer is yes. Yes. Do you have any plays that you've done that you sort of like have another bash at because you see it and it seems like you get it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. Um, I wouldn't say that about the Crucible. Certainly the first time I did the Crucible. Uh, it was hugely popular, um, but I noticed doing it, and I sort of feel occasionally I blush because I think, oh, this part, the scene is so interesting, and I can't even remember doing it before. And it must have been that I just sort of, you know, thrust it on one side. Yeah, there, there, there are a few, um, a few plays. <laughs> I don't. I have a few Shakespeare plays that I think I haven't got right at the time, but I think I could now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. moving from directing television to doing uh, a, a, a theatrical movie is not that different, except I was writing this. So the, the, the sense in which 
the way in which a theatrical movie has to sort of resonate, uh, the way in which it has to acquire some sort of, uh, it's, it's hard to put your finger on. And you always know it when you see it. You say, oh, that's, that's a bit of a TV movie and that, that is theatrical. But something about the way that, um, I mean, to return what I was saying about the, the but that's wild generalization. Uh, and in some way, performances uh, are so, and uh, need to be so potent on the big, big screen. But I would say the difference, the more interesting difference is between theater and, and film. And I would say almost everything about the theater is bad training for working in film. Except that the lingua franca, you know, the currency of filmmaker is, is working with, with actors. It's, I don't know if it's entirely a coincidence that quite a few British directors, myself, Nicholas Heitner, Stephen Daugherty, and Sam Mendes, and Roger Michel, five directors who are all not exactly contemporaries, uh, have had successful movies recently. They're all people who have worked more in the theatre than in, in film. But, uh, and that's, I think, because they're used to working with writers and they're used to working, they're used to telling stories, finding ways of telling stories, and they're used to working with actors on, on realizing performances. But in directing film, the actual sort of putting staging, it's so, it, you've really just got to rid yourself of that thing of looking of the theatre having only one point of view. And I learned something really, really useful from, um, uh, wasn't quite the first film that I did, I think this was the second film I did, with a very, very gifted and very instinctive cameraman. And I would set up a scene for him that I'd rehearse, and I'd stand in where I thought was the most interesting place to look at the scene. And he just, Stop walking around the room, and then he beckoned me and said, "But from here, it's much more interesting from here, and it, may, it might be from the back of their heads." And and you, if you work in the theatre, you're so used to that thing of you sit there, you know, the actors are there, and you just don't in a rehearsal room wander around the room, you know, you don't, and you can sort of imagine the the sidelines. You don't do that. The other thing that is a bad habit from theatre translates to film, is that thing that most of what you're doing in the theatre is trying to, to engineer the choreography in a way that you throw emphasis on, you know, you say to the audience, look there, that person is talking, look there, look there, and only occasionally do you actually go, you know, that person is the most important figure, but that person is talking, I want the audience to look there. Whereas in film, actually very rarely, is the most interesting thing in a scene, the person who's talking quite often. It's the person being talked at, or something that, you know, the dialogue is just happening as a sort of current behind something that's happening. So, and the dialogue, you know, lines are so often not the action of, of, a, of a scene. Uh, and that's, you know, when I was writing this screenplay, we kept writing with a friend who is actually a very experienced screenwriter, but we kept throwing away lines. But there's a temptation with writing film to put in too much because 
people who like a sort of good read, and they don't tend not to read stage directions. Uh, whereas when you see a film, um, more of the film would be in stage directions, would be in description, than in actually what's what's being said. Yes. Are you uh, looking forward to reading John Simon's review? Um, I don't know. I, I haven't run across John Simon for a few years, so I don't know if his fangs are uh, any less uh, sharp than they used to be. Um, actually, I once sat, uh, when I was running the National Theatre, I once sat next to a guy at lunch who was tremendously nice to me and, and very enthusiastic about a lot of the work of the National Theatre. And I said to, to a friend of mine afterwards, who is that nice man I was sitting with? They said, John Simon. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Um, do you know, I, 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 I now don't read all the, all the press. When I, when I ran the National Theatre, I used to have to read all the press every day. And every day we would get, you know, the, the press cuts would be, you know, that thing page after page after page after page and I'd read the notices of every show and more often than not I feel you know across the board if you read about 30 notices the broadly speaking they they reflect the views of the audience broadly speaking and it's a, it's it's quite hard to say because sometimes you're railing against the injustice and sometimes there are injustices, but um, and I get terribly hurt. Right? I don't believe people who say a. I don't believe people who say they don't read any notices, and b. I don't believe people who say oh I don't care about because <laughs> I, I do. I, I care a lot. I, um, and maybe it's a, a weakness, but I don't know how how not to. Okay, Isabel. Um, well, one of them is 13. Uh, I think the oldest is 21. Um, they're pretty bright girls. I mean, they're not... Uh, they're far from a sort of tribe of people whose opinion isn't felt in the rehearsal room. Um, and actually the, the, the Mary Warren is a uh, student at Juilliard. Um, and so, you know, is, is kind of quite savvy about uh, rehearsals. And so it, it's just, I guess what I said earlier, trying to make sure that, that they're not treated as a sort of subspecies of actor who is, you know, a young and 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 the you know young female. Yeah, I did want I did want people who looked children like children, and the thing that is the the um, dynamic of the play really depends, uh, and, and it's the sort of detonation of the play is this relationship between a girl who essentially is a child. Who has been, who Proctor has uh, had sex with, and he 
pushes her away from the same um, child, calling her child, and he says to her, how do you call me child? Because he's the person responsible for her no longer being a child. But there, it's, it's uh, I think, a wonderful thing in the play is that in the first act, you feel not that Proctor is, this, is a great hero, but he's a guy who's actually morally extremely, um, you know, in an extremely dubious position in this very, very repressive society. So the sort of, the childlikeness of the children was to me very, 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 very important that these are children, not, uh, you know, not adults. Okay, well, one or two more questions. How about the children role? I guess you go first, and then you go ahead. I'm just curious about your design. Uh, how you work with your designers in the process of, especially at the designer, you can talk about that. Um, I'm reasonably monogamous with my relationship with designers. I've worked with three designers in the last 10, 10 or 12 years. Um, uh, Bob Crowley, Ward and uh, Tim Hatley. And I suppose, first of all, they are all people who have, uh, I feel, you know, are friends and have a sensibility and, you know, we look at the world in a similar way, we like the same pictures, like the same people, have the same sense of humor. Um, and they do something that I can't. I can't do. So I don't think of them as sort of an extension of me. One of the things I love about uh, working with designer is that it, it's a perfect dialectic um, when it really works. That I say, oh, I think the play is that, and they say, I think the play is this. You, you um, in the case of Anthony Ward, <coughs> what we always do is actually sit down and read the play together, which can be quite hair-raising, since um, <laughs> Anthony uh, is very, very shy and sort of reads things like that. And, and I'm a sort of ex-actor. I like to sort of play all the parts. <laughs> uh, and so we'd read that. Um, uh, uh, we, we just, you just talk a, an awful lot and you get sort of fragments. You get an idea about a piece of furniture or, or a gesture or something. Um, I mean, in the case of the crucible, uh, we would just say, well, it's, you know, this, this, these people have made their own houses. It has to feel like the, the, the world being constructed by the people you see you see on the on the stage. And then there'll be something like, oh, how they should come from below. Uh, so you'd start with, you know, the need for a staircase below. You start with just elements and it's not even a cardboard model and just talk and talk and talk and. Uh, then photographs, somehow, you know, you'd see a photograph in a, in a newspaper or a magazine or, or a book or a painting. Bring in the painting and say, oh, I think this Caravaggio is something like, you know, regardless of whether you're working on a, on a 17th century play or, or a contemporary play, it's just fragments, collages, and gradually you sort of, you distill around specific ideas. You know, there comes a point at which all the generalities have to become specific. And once you start on a specific thing, I mean, the example I always quote um, is because I used to do chemistry. And those of you who've ever done chemical experiments, 
will remember copper sulfate solution, which is a beautiful iridescent blue. And what you do um, when your kids studying chemistry is you grow copper sulfate um, crystals to look at on a microscope, and you put you have a thread like a sewing thread, and you put a little crystal, existing crystal of copper sulfate, and you watch it grow, and you can get um, crystals that size. And that's what, for me, that's the metaphor for the design process. You start with a specific crystal in a saturated solution. The saturated solution is everything you thought and talked about in the play, and then, then gradually it becomes solid and you know a model is made and um, then it's translated into stuff that appears on stage at great expense. <laughs> we regret that this question was inaudible on the original master tapes. We're going to go directly to the answer. Um, he's definitely writing a play. Um, I don't think specifically Enron, though uh, it's a subject that uh, that Arthur would take on with tremendous appetite. I think. Um, it's it's a good subject, actually a good subject for for any American writer at the moment. Um, but uh, you know, what's the ending? <laughs> okay. Um be our last question. Thank you. We regret that this question was inaudible on the original master tapes. We're going to go directly to the answer. What, uh, <laughs> what to do for your audition? You've just got to be truthful. I'll give you an example. There's, there's an actor called Tom Wilkinson, who is currently wonderful in, in film called In the Bedroom. Uh, I gave Tom Wil Wilkinson his, his first job. And what he did when he came with British actors, normally when you're just interview, um, auditioning actors for a company, you'd ask them to do one piece of Shakespeare and one contemporary piece. And he did his, he did the speech, Hamlet's advice to the players. Speak this speech, I pray you, as I pronounced it, tripping on, on the tongue. And he did it like I didn't even know he'd started. It was just like a guy saying, well, this is what I think good acting is about. And I remembered it because it was so unselfconscious. It was so not, I'm trying to tell you I'm a wonderful actor. It was relaxed and clear. And, and, and truthful and expressive, and I don't know any more than that. And last and truthful and expressive, thank you for there. Again, this is Hope Clark, and thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members. 
Visit us on the web at www.sdcweb.org. This online series is presented in collaboration with the American Theatre Wing, dedicated to illuminating how theatre is made through the words of the people who make theatre. Visit them online at americantheaterwing.org.